0: America in withdrawal, the Taliban on the rise, chaos, questions, and blame all around. Where does America go from here, and what will it mean for our closest Democratic allies?
1: Joining us this week to share his perspective, General H.R. McMaster, warrior, historian,
0: strategist, and first national security advisor to former President Donald Trump. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to episode 22 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, lots of news to discuss. Can't wait to talk to General McMaster on his thoughts on everything we're seeing uh, out of Afghanistan Uh, these hours. It seems like something new every hour uh, that horrifies us on the news. Uh, But first, a couple of items in the news. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, taking off for the United States for his first bilateral meeting at the White House with President Biden. This amidst the backdrop of everything we're seeing in Afghanistan. Uh, Jared, how do you think that meeting will go? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, Rich. I think
1: it's going to be underwhelming in terms of news. I think both leaders have an incentive to show that they will have a business-like and cordial relationship. Both of them have domestic issues as it relates to their relationship with the other country, and I think there will be uh, it will be uneventful as uh, meetings like this go.
0: I think that's true sort of the 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 news coverage angle right, right that 's definitely right. what both sides want to have nice cordial relations, et cetera. I have to think inside the closed doors though the Israeli policy on Iran cannot have suddenly changed overnight, right? It's not like they woke up and said, oh, you know what, Bibi Netanyahu was crazy. He ignored everyone. And actually, Iran's not this crazy threat. We support going back into the Iran nuclear deal. The flashpoint's going to be over Iran. Right. And I just
1: wonder, how, and we'll, you know, we'll finally start to get some answers to the question of, was it a you know, a personality difference. So once you take Bibi Netanyahu out of this, is there a way for a democratic administration and a right of center Israeli government to move forward together on Iran? Or are the policy differences just too, too far to bridge?
0: And I think we're going to start to get some answers to that question uh, out of this visit. To get a little granular for a moment, because I think our listeners will appreciate it, I think there are several unanswered questions that could emerge after the meeting as far as what the decisions of this new Israeli government will be. Do they take the posture of, we can't stop Biden from going back in, so we're just not going to fight the return to the nuclear deal the way that Netanyahu fought the first time? And so we're going to say, here are the other things we would like as make good, so to speak. You're you're hosing us on this Iran deal thing. It's gonna make our lives harder. So here's our list of asks that we would like. Or are they gonna say, we are going to fight on this, we are going to make our position clear, and we, you know, aren't going to ask permission from you for anything for our freedom of action, we are going to continue freedom of action in the neighborhood, including the possibility of a strike against Iran, ultimately. Uh, The other sort of piece of this is Afghanistan, right? I think the dynamic of the meeting has to have changed a little bit. Because when you talk to Israeli security leaders, they have been very concerned going back to the Trump administration, when President Trump signaled he wanted to leave Syria, he wanted to pull all troops out of Syria. Uh, that they they might leave Iraq. Uh the Israelis are very concerned with with good reason that the Iranians would take that vacuum and move all of their militias and terrorist groups and the IRGC into completing what they call the Shia arc from the Mediterranean at Lebanon all the way around to Yemen. Um and If you pulled out that last garrison at Tanef of the Americans, which is sort of the last piece that stops this land bridge for the Iranians completing that Shia crescent, and you were to cede Iraq to the Iranians to allow them to move more missiles into Iraq to be able to, again, put Israel in its sights, those are big strategic shifts uh, for Israeli national security. And so if you see the president leave Afghanistan— and sort of suffer the consequences politically for that decision because he believes it's the right thing to do what if the next decision is pull out of syria you know bring the americans out of iraq let iran have the territory it wants throughout the region has that changed any of the requests in the meeting has that changed their thinking going into this meeting yeah that's a
1: that's a good question i think you know we're not going to get answers to that right away but it'll trickle out in the weeks and months to follow uh with that I'm going to take uh, a former Jewish liaison prerogative to... Uh,
0: Jay J. Lotus, I think Jay Lotus,
1: yes. the former Jay Lotus, Lotus. Prerogative, prerogative to recognize the uh, White House has named the Jewish liaison. Uh, they brought back a veteran out of the bullpen, Hanan Weissman, State Department employee, a huge mensch, uh, unflappable, and he's been named the Jewish liaison in the White House. And we wish him all the success in the world to build bridges between the Jewish people and and the white house and we welcome him on this podcast
0: Somebody texted me once. You know, have you heard about the new J. Lotus? And I was like, oh, I've never heard that term. I've heard a lot of terms. I've worked inside around the White House. Uh, I never heard J. Lotus. It did like J. Lo get promoted? Like is, right. is, is she? Is she, <laughs> is she, is she like our goodwill ambassador now? Well,
1: well, listen. You know, I, I'm pretty sure the only people who have ever called it J. Lotus are the people <laughs> who have had that job. I don't think anybody else has ever. In fact, I've said it uh, in in passing in front of my wife, and there is a huge eye roll whenever the word j lotus
0: comes up uh in front of her (laughs) but i digress all right jared well obviously we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attack so let's get to the news everyone else is talking about the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan the fall of kabul to the taliban the potential to see the rise of al-qaeda in afghanistan so many questions here jared policy questions Should we have stayed longer in Afghanistan? What would that have looked like? How would we have defined success for the American people? Why wasn't this withdrawal plan better? Could it have been? Did it have to become this disaster that we see? Political questions. Why did Biden go to Camp David with the possible fall of the Kabul imminent? Why did Biden refuse phone calls from world leaders for days? Why does he still sort of seem like he's detached from the human suffering that's unfolding? That's my view. And geopolitical questions. What's Xi Jinping in China thinking about all this? What's the supreme leader in Iran thinking? What do our allies think? My personal view, this was the most predicted, predicted, not predictable, predicted, an avoidable foreign policy failure of our generation, and get ready because Iran's still around the corner.
1: And, Rich, when you say the most predicted foreign policy failure of our generation, you're talking about the Trump administration capitulating to the Taliban when they, when they signed a treaty, when they signed a deal with them, right? We're not talking about the fall of Kabul specifically.
0: Oh, I'm talking about going back to that moment when the Trump administration decided to legitimize the Taliban, capitulate to the Taliban, exclude our Afghan partners from negotiations, weaken and undermine the Afghan government. From that moment, you can plot the trajectory until now. And obviously, President Biden is not President Trump. He had his own decisions to make. He had his own policy review. He completed this. The disaster is on his watch at his direction. But it was obvious and actually published in print by many that this is exactly what would happen if we left.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Rich, uh, the question I'm asking here, and frankly, the question I'm always asking whenever we talk about these meaty strategic issues is what is the alternative given the circumstances? And we talked about it a moment ago, the Trump deal, the inability of the Afghan government to function in a meaningful way. What could have gone differently? And what's the end game
0: given where we are uh, right now? And such is the debate around the country and indeed around the world. So let's try to sort some of these questions out with our special guest this week. H.R. McMaster served as a commissioned officer in the United States Army for 34 years with senior leadership posts in Iraq and Afghanistan before retiring as lieutenant general in June of 2018. Today, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, lecturer at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, and chairman of the Center for Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense and Democracies. General McMaster was the 26th assistant to the president for national security affairs. That's the very formal title we give the national security advisor. Serving President Donald Trump from 2017 to 2018, he holds a PhD in military history from the University of North Carolina, and he's the author of two incredible books. I'm sure he'll talk about them, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, his most recent, and one that made him famous, Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, The Joint Chiefs of Staff, and The Lies That Led to Vietnam. General McMaster, we're honored to have you on the podcast. Hey, Rich,
2: it's great to be with you and Jared. Thanks for having me
0: absolutely Uh, i want to start by reading a short excerpt Uh, this is you and brad bowman of fdd in the wall street journal a few days ago quote the world is witnessing in afghanistan a vivid and painful display of what happens when leaders in washington delude themselves regarding persistent threats the nature of america's enemies and the ability to end wars by simply going home powerful opening and indictment of many on both sides of the aisle why don't we start by just asking, what is the delusion you're talking about in this piece?
2: Well, hey, the delusion is what I talk about in, in, in this book, Battlegrounds, which is you know, strategic narcissism, the tendency to define the world only in relation to us and to believe that what we choose to do or choose not to do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. But hey, guess what? Others have a say in the future course of events, especially determined, brutal enemies, like the terrorist organization, the Taliban, and their Al Qaeda and Haqqani network allies.
1: So, General, we've heard you talk about uh, a sustained but low-level troop presence as a potential al- as an alternative to what's going on right now. Is that something that we really can sustain as a society, uh, and are, is the American public ready for that?
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. They could be if the president would execute leadership. I mean, what, are the, what are the part of the story is, you know. President Joe Biden is stuck in the Obama administration still, you know, when he was vice president. And he keeps talking about, you know, two trillion dollars and all the casualties and and the large the the large effort. Hey, we had what? Eighty five hundred troops uh, there when we began the capitulation negotiations with the Taliban who were enabling the Afghans to bear the brunt of the fight at the cost of what? About twenty two billion dollars a year, about two point five percent of our defense budget. I'll tell you, Jared, if we if we were. You know, if we were Ecuador, it might be a stretch, you know, but but it was a sustainable commitment. And I think what we're seeing now is the cost of that sustainable commitment was far, far lower than the cost of this precipitous withdrawal and essentially surrender to the Taliban.
1: And General, as a follow-up to that, I've heard you talk on other podcasts and, and read your writings about how uh, the American public really needs to be behind seeing this effort through. And I guess I would like to take you back to 2001 when President George W. Bush asked for a congressional authorization for use of force. Should he have asked for a declaration of war and called this what it was and really sensitize the American public to what it would take to end this threat?
2: You know, I don't. I don't know. I don't think it really matters that much. You know, because he got congressional authorization with it. You know, with a lopsided vote in favor of it. You know, he fulfilled. I think. You know, the allowed the first branch of government to give Article One authority to wage war. To you know, to the executive branch, and uh, and and so I, I think what what failed to occur since that time is leaders stopped talking to the American people about what was at stake in Afghanistan, why it was worth a sustained commitment, and and by the way, you know, subsequent leaders, President Bush included, and and certainly you know the the uh, the Obama and then in the later phase of the Trump administration, didn't really execute or implement a strategy designed for the reality of Afghanistan. These strategies were based on the, on fantasy in, in Washington. And so it wasn't a 20-year war in Afghanistan, Jared. What's sad about it, it was a one-year war fought 20 times over. And I would say the only time that we had a reasoned and sustained and sustainable approach to Afghanistan was when President Trump announced uh, the the South Asia strategy in August of 2017. It is worth. I wish your, your listeners would go back and read that speech or watch that speech. And sadly, he backed off on it because he he had I think the, you know I would I would call them the neo isolationist extreme libertarian far right uh, in his ear, telling him you know this is a futile endeavor, this is the graveyard of empires. All of these sort of false. You know, framings of the war. I mean, we were there for our own interests to prevent jihadist terrorists from ever again establishing a safe haven and support base that would allow them to to plan, organize and resource attacks on the scale of 9-11. And guess what? We just handed the Afghan state to the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, who is
0: completely intertwined uh, with Al Qaeda, the Haqqani Network and other jihadist terrorists. So, so I want to pick up on this. You talk about the neo-isolationist uh, memes that we see out there, their messaging. We hear that from the White House in different ways. From the White House, we hear, listen, we, we can't fight a war that the Afghans won't fight for themselves. Uh, been there 20 years, trillions of dollars, blah, blah, blah. When we hear from the neo-isolationists, the far right, we hear, oh, look at this, uh, 20 years, billions and billions of dollars, blood and tears wasted. And, you know, they, they folded in a long weekend. We The Af- the Afghan army completely collapsed we wasted everything here the messaging does take hold for some people on a political level and i think it's important to understand for our listeners why did the Afghan army collapse so quickly? Yeah, Rich, I'll, I'll tell you the, the reason they
2: collapsed is we delivered psychological blows against them from which they could not recover. And this this began with the, the capitulation negotiations with the Taliban that began in 2019 and that culminated in the capitulation agreement of February of 2020. We engaged in those negotiations without the Afghan government. Okay, so what the heck did that do to the legitimacy of the Afghan government? And then in essence, Rich, what we did is we, we engaged in this conceit, this self-delusion that we could actually partner with the Taliban against Al-Qaeda and these groups with which they're completely intertwined. And and we did so in a way that abandoned our support for the Afghan government. We forced the Afghan government to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous criminals on earth who immediately went back to the Taliban immediately went back to terrorizing the Afghan people. We did not insist on a ceasefire. And then we announced, hey, our support's over. We stopped providing air support. We pulled out, you know, the, the aircraft that we had there, the very few advisors we had in, in, in an effort to not to offend the Taliban after this, this capitulation agreement, during which, by the way, after which, by the way, the Taliban continued mass murder attacks against the Afghan people. I mean, <laughs> Rich, I mean, they, they attacked the maternity hospital. They gunned down expectant mothers and infants. They, they blew up girls' schools and set up secondary explosive devices so when they fled the first explosion, they could kill more young girls. This is what the Taliban was doing after our agreement, and we were so afraid to offend them, we wouldn't even allow the U.S. general officer, whose responsibility it was to, to mentor and coach the Afghan government, to be in Afghanistan. Our our, our, our charge at the embassy said, oh, no, we should only have like one general in Afghanistan at a time because the Taliban might get offended by that. This is before the massive offensive that they conducted. I mean, we, we abandoned them, Rich. We delivered psychological blows to them that, that were much more severe uh, than, than, the, uh, than the physical blows the Taliban could deliver. You know what happened after that capitulation agreement? The Taliban took it with them and they went around to every district chief, to every provincial chief and said, hey, let, let me explain this to you. The Americans are abandoning you and you have two, you have two options accommodate with us on the date we tell you to begin accommodating with us uh, or we kill your family you know how does that sound okay so that's what happened rich and it's 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 really abhorrent it's it's a real stain uh on on our, our reputation and on our history
1: general you wrote one of the definitive works on uh the vietnam war um it was your phd thesis if i'm not mistaken uh and it looked at the failure of decision-making in Washington. And I, the question I have here is in relation to Pakistan. And uh, is Pakistan the North Vietnam we never dealt with uh, that was a cause of a lot of what we saw in country in South Vietnam and here in Afghanistan? And if we didn't, why do you think that was the case that we never dealt with that uh, throughout the 20 years that we were involved in Afghanistan, that we never really decisively dealt with the support from Pakistan?
2: Well Jared, I mean you're referring to the book "Dereliction of Duty, right? And 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 what I refer to this this dynamic with with Pakistan uh, in in, uh, in battlegrounds is is serial gullibility with the Pakistanis. That that's, that's the only way that I can can explain it. You know, and, and I, I I tell a story of my interactions. You know, with General Bajwa, the head of the Pakistani army. You know, the Pakistani leaders, such as they were, the civilian leaders, but who were on their way out there. And of course, Imran Khan is kind of the shop window. You know, for the for the Pakistani army and uh, General Naveed Mukhtar, who is the uh, it was the head of their. Their inner services intelligence, the shadowy arm of the Pakistani army that has been supporting, you know, not only the Taliban but a whole range of jihadist terrorist organizations uh, who are grave threats to all humanity, such as Lashkar-e-Taiba, for example, and and uh, and so uh, we we never dealt with the Pakistanis in the way we should have, which is to which is to, to cast them as the pariah state that they should be, right? And what I said to Pakistani. Um, officials when I when I when I went on a South Asia trip to try to jumpstart uh, this what, what I think was the only time we had a sound policy in place the speech I mentioned that, that President Trump gave in 2017 I said hey listen this is your future your future is that you are a pariah state with a single state sponsor namely China you know what that looks like to me that looks like North Korea is that the future you want but you know we never force that choice on them because we always believe their lies that they're going to again you know be part of the solution, and so these are these are people who who are the arsonists who then pose as the firemen, right? And and uh, and and our, our leaders have never really called them on that. President Biden was the one who put in this approach to Pakistan as hey, you know, there's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which was was a lie, de- a delusional lie, you know. And and so what we really need to do is work with the Pakistanis about better counterterrorism in Pakistan. And remember Secretary Kerry negotiated this long-term agreement with the Pakistanis where which we give them billions and billions of dollars and lots of military assistance in exchange for better cooperation. Well, I mean, we're perpetuating that. Uh, the, the one person who broke with that was was Trump, but then he caved again. He caved again to those who were in his ears saying, "We need to get out of there. And The way to get out of there is get the Pakistanis to help us more." That's always been a pipe dream. When Imran Khan showed up in the Oval Office, sitting next to Donald Trump, I, I was I was yelling at the TV screen, "Man, I'm telling you, Rich and Jared, I mean, <laughs> I can't believe it, like how the hell did that happen?" You know. So, so I, I think what, what we need to do is wake up. Imran Khan has said. That the Afghan people have been unshackled by the Taliban in the Taliban's victory. Hey, let's take him at his word on that, that that's where his heart is. And let's have Pakistan suffer the consequences. You know, this is a, this, Pakistan is a ward of, of, the, of the Gulf states, of the Emiratis, of the Gutteries and the Saudis. And if we have any influence left with them at this stage, we should say, hey, listen, time to cut them off. And then we should begin to apply sanctions to the Pakistani leadership, this army leadership who who helped the Taliban destroy girls' schools in Afghanistan while they send their kids to private schools in the west right let 's sanction those families let 's cut off their funds let 's take a stand on Pakistan now as we see the catastrophe. In Afghanistan that, that they have helped to bring about
0: generally you talk about the capitulation agreement uh, that the Trump administration signed last year uh, to me one of the worst things President Trump did and he did a lot of good things was to legitimize the Taliban as a diplomatic actor rather than a terrorist organization which is what it is and f- obviously the pre- president Biden you know has made this even more farcical in recent days with comments like they're going through an existential crisis uh, h- how scared should we be at this point of the prospect of a Taliban government that actually gets diplomatic recognition around the world that's not subject to sanctions, that has access to resources? We should be very scared about that
2: because we've already demonstrated we have no backbone, right? And so what we need to do is we need to wake up to the reality as we see the horrors that are unfolding in Afghanistan and ensure that that doesn't happen. You already have. You know this narrative coming out of the U.S. State Department, right? Secretary Blinken, you know, and others. You know, the National Security Advisor saying, you know, well, we, we what we're really banking on here is the is the, is the international opinion, you know, ab- about the Taliban. We're waiting to see, you know, what kind of government they form. As if the Taliban gives a damn about what people in you know in New York or or in Brussels, you know, or in the Hague, you know, uh, think about uh, think about them. We, we know. What the Taliban stands for, because we've seen what they're doing already across the country. We know how they ruled from 96 to 2001, and they've told us what they're what they're going to do. So I I really think this is an important, important issue. The other thing that we ought to do, Rich and and Jared, is we ought to support Afghan opposition to them. Amrullah Saleh is in the Panjshir Valley. Uh, he and his forces retook four districts yesterday, right? And so th- this, below, you know, th- this is what, what sh- sh- you know, gives the lie to this narrative that Afghans won't fight. I mean, we abandoned them. We facilitated the collapse. But there are still there's, those there who, who are fighting you know, for the future of that country. Not that we want to see Afghanistan Mesh in another destructive civil war. But if the alternative is the hell of the Taliban, uh, I-, I think that these groups are worthy of our support.
0: I want to talk more about implications and way forward and solutions or mitigation you know, policies. But but before we do, one other thing that, that strikes me is that President Biden keeps coming back to this idea of if we made the decision to get out, chaos was inevitable. What we're seeing right now was inevitable. So, so my question is, so new president comes in in January. He asks the NSC to run a policy review. Uh, they give him all the different policy options. Obviously, you would think there are policy options on the table able to stay in Afghanistan, uh minimal force, you know, mitigate disaster, um uh, you know, keep Afghanistan from becoming the terrorist state that that it may now become. And the president says, "No, I don't care. I want to get out. I want to get out." At that point from from that moment where he gives the direction of, "I don't care. I want to get out," to what we see today, what would have been the breakdown in policies, processes, that should have happened, but but didn't happen. Well, it, it it didn't happen because the president didn't want it to happen, right?
2: Ultimately, a president can get the advice he wants by the way he structures, you know, who his advisors are and the process that he participates in. The, the whole the whole Afghanistan South Asia assessment that went on for, you know five months or whatever it was in the administration that that was all veneer it was a facade uh to to, to legitimize a decision the president had made you know back when he was vice president and and uh and, and i think it was a condition of employment for the secretary of state and the national security advisor uh that they support his decision uh to to to, to leave afghanistan stand precipitously to, to to withdraw and um and and I you know I, I tell the story of, you know in, in in this in this book on on Vietnam that Jared mentioned you know that uh, Lyndon Johnson you know Lyndon Johnson let his advisors know hey this is what I want out of the process and I think what happened is that his his senior advisors you know, d- delivered on that now did 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 uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have a voice uh, did the Secretary of Defense have a voice yeah but it, it didn't really matter the president wasn't going to listen to them in terms of the long term costs and consequences. Of, of surrender to the Taliban, uh, rel- and, and and the cost relative to what it would take to sustain our commitment there, I think the decision was already made, and uh, and uh, and this was a foregone conclusion for the Biden administration. General, hypothetical,
1: uh, you get named national security Advisor again tomorrow. Uh, what does the next thirty days, ninety days look like for you? If you were advising the president going forward, given the realities on the ground that we have right now.
2: Well, of course, you know, once you surrender, you know, uh, your options become quite limited. Right. Uh, so, so I think what you would have to do is, is begin to reverse, you know, that that surrender by first doing what Rich, I think, alluded to, which is ensure that you know, nobody, you know, no, nobody uh, recognizes this terrorist government uh, to, to work on on international isolation of that government. Hey, I'll tell you, man, we're going to have to really double down on ca- counterterrorism efforts across. Uh, the Greater Middle East and South Asia, because not only were those five thousand released on our assistance, but then some of the most wor- the worst terrorists on, on earth have been have been released from Afghan prisons, uh, and uh, and so we should be hunting them down using a combination of partner military and law enforcement and intelligence capabilities. And then and then I what we what we have to do I think is begin to build you know sort of our will back uh, to support opposition to the Taliban. I'm, I'm telling you. Rich and Jared, we're going to be back. I mean, we're going to be back, right? I mean, we haven't learned from even our most proximate experiences. In December 2011, then-Vice President Biden called President Obama uh, on the phone from Baghdad at a ceremony attended and presided over by by him and then also his Secretary of Defense now as President, uh, Lloyd Austin. And in that phone call to President Obama, he said, Thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war. Now, anybody with eyes, right, could have seen back then – that This means Al-Qaeda in Iraq is coming back. And, uh, and what happened? Uh, by 2014, ISIS was in control, which is Al-Qaeda 2.0, was in control of territory the size of Britain and became the most destructive terrorist organization in history, I mean, conducting 125 attacks internationally. I mean, the Brussels airport, right? Multiple attacks in, in, in France, you know, shooting down a Russian airliner, inspiring attacks in the United States, right? I mean, and so what did we have to do? We had to go back. We had to go back at a much higher cost and a much more level of higher level of difficulty than if we had sustained a small commitment in, in, in Iraq. Now, what you're going to see now is momentum, momentum from our capitulation in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, ISIS, uh, as well as al-Qaeda, is going to gain strength from the victory of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. You're going to see other actors emboldened, uh, like, the, like the Shia militia and terrorist organizations in Iraq, who I, I guarantee, I, I think, are, they're going to try to attack our forces because they think the Biden administration is weak, and they'll just pull back. Uh, I think you're going to see an emboldened adversaries elsewhere, uh, China in the South, China Sea. I think it's important to remember, you know, you, you can draw a straight line, I believe, Rich and Jared, from, you know, from the unenforced red line in Syria in 2013 and 14 to Russia's annexation of Crimea, invasion of Ukraine and the building and militarization of violence in the South China Sea by the by by the Chinese. Because I think they just concluded this is the Americans are weak. They're not going to do anything. So so we have to bolster our deterrent capability uh, internationally at, at the same time. Uh, and, you know, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I hope we can rebuild our, our reputation in terms of the United States having the will and the capability to make a difference in the world. I don't know how the president is going to host his his conference on democracies in December with, with a straight face. How is he going to do that? You know, we, we've talked about how America's back, right? America's back. Now we're at the G7. Who's in the lead at the G7 now? The Europeans. Because they have the guts to tell Siraj Haqqani, Right, the leader of the Haqqani network, who's the military commander of the Taliban, who's completely connected to and a part of Al Qaeda, they're, they're, they're the only ones who have the guts to tell them, "Hey, listen, this deadline for for, for the evacuation of of of, of, of Afghans and, and American citizens and our citizens is it, we're not going to adhere to that." But but uh, but you know we're, we're buckling, and you know I'll tell you, we're going to leave American citizens in Afghanistan if we adhere to this. If we adhere to this. You know th- this, uh, you know this capitulation agreement, and and, and you know on August thirty first, that means we're going to have to start scaling down like to, like tomorrow, right? And and uh, and, and you know we're going to leave Americans behind. And you know you know what we're doing is we're helping, we're creating a hostage crisis, right? We're creating maybe even potential for losses greater than nine eleven on our way out, right? And nobody's talking about that now. When you when you listen to the you know the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor and the President, oh, it's great record numbers coming out today, right? Uh, of, of Kabul, of a, of a half of the Kabul airport. Uh, you know this is this is abhorrent, and and, uh, and we need more people's voices telling the President, listen, if you adhere to this capitulation agreement and leave Americans behind, we're, we're going to have to demand you know accountability for this.
0: General, uh, you know, I, I've I've called the Biden administration's policy on Iran maximum deference, and I feel like that's what we're seeing right now from them on the Taliban as well. It's maximum deference yeah. to the Taliban. But I do sort of wonder. Obviously, the Israeli Prime Minister coming to Washington to have a bilateral meeting in the middle of all of this chaos, right? The Israelis, who knows what they're thinking in Jerusalem, with all of their fears of U.S. presence in Syria, U.S. presence in Iraq for the future, Iran's nuclear program moving forward uh, exponentially what's your view right now on how Tehran is probably looking at this and what the U.S. needs to do in response? Yeah, I mean, they see this as just even more weakness, right? I mean, and and we've already are projecting
2: weakness on all fronts, right? Because we have, you know, a a U.S. envoy, much like, you know, the the surrender envoy of Zal Khalilzad, uh, supplicating to the Iranians, uh, even as they they have increased attacks on our forces in Iraq. Uh, I think endeavoring to make concession after concession, because that's the only way they're going to revive the Iran nuclear deal um, and and, and demonstrating even greater weakness as Iran continues its four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, you know, the United States and the little Satan, uh, you know, Israel. And, and and of course against their Arab neighbors a, a, as well. So I, I think this is a pr- very dangerous position, Rich, because I think the Iranians are also involved. You saw the attack on the on the uh, Israeli-owned tanker uh, that that, uh, that that killed uh, killed people on that on that tanker. You saw you see the increased attacks across the region. You saw Hezbollah try to rocket uh, tr- try to rocket Israel, and a really interesting story that didn't get much coverage is a Druze militia beat them down basically. Saying what the hell are you doing? This is just going to bring the IDF back, you know, to destroy, to you know, to inflict uh, more uh, more casualties, and and they and are blaming Hezbollah for it. I think that the Hamas attacks out of Gaza. A couple months ago that that all is iranian incited certainly all of those munitions are provided by the iranians so the iranians are going to act out and, and i think the prime minister is going to talk uh with the president about the need for us to portray strength you know i'll tell you i'll tell you rich if we if we re-enter this iran nuclear deal which is already dead by the way right because of the sunset clauses that are already about to kick in and the fact that they're enriching uranium to 60 percent already right and this is the un you know, re- reporting this um that I think the chances of, of an Israeli strike uh, against uh, against Iran are, are you know more than eighty uh, percent in the near future, and I think what you're going to see is more cooperation even uh, between Israel and some of the Gulf states, um, and uh, and you'll see a lot of actions taken whatever they can do, whatever hours they have left in their quiver, actions short of a direct attack on Iranian uh, nuclear facilities. General, it strikes me that. A
1: lot of the blame here is sort of bipartisan in nature, right? There's plenty of blame to go around about our failed policies in Afghanistan. Um, You know, you have critiqued uh, just in the last few minutes, right and left actors, Biden and Trump appointees. It strikes me as that we're just not talking to the American people about what's real anymore. It feels airbrushed. Do you think that that's part of the part of the issue about why we can't do what needs to be done in the foreign policy arena because we are not being fully transparent with the American people about what's required?
2: Absolutely. Right. This is this is leadership has become performative. Right. Rather than formative. And this is why your podcast is so important. Americans, we, oh gosh, we all need to take time, take time to learn more about the challenges and opportunities we face internationally. So we can force we can force our, our political leaders uh, to do more than try to score partisan political points, you know, and, and to do more than the bumper sticker of end endless wars. Hey, you know, hey, the news flash here is, hey, man, it's not an endless war. It's an endless jihad being waged against us by jihadist terrorists. And if we disengage unilaterally, we're, we're, we're placing our, ourselves and future generations at a grave and unnecessary risk. You know, and, and I think that there is a point, it is bipartisan, Jared, the, the problems here, you know. I mean, there is a point at which the self-loathing far left, right, connects with, you know, the, the bigoted, nativist, you know, extreme libertarian isolationist, you know, how many other adjectives can I use? Far right. And, and, uh, and you know, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. And what, what the American people deserve to know is, okay, hey, what the hell's at stake, right? What is the nature of of this challenge to our security and our future prosperity? And then, hey, what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome at an acceptable cost and risk? And, you know, I haven't heard that across three administrations now, Jared. And, you know, People make a big point these days. Well, you know, the American people weren't going to support this, man. I mean, you know, look at the polling numbers. Yeah, well, when three presidents in a row say it's not worth it, we need to just get the hell out. What do you think the support's going to be, right? And so, so I think it is. It's a lack of leadership across
0: multiple administrations. General, one last policy question, and then uh, we definitely want to turn to a couple more lighthearted uh, questions uh, on the way out. Some lightning round questions to get get to know you better. Uh, the president talks about an over-the-horizon capability going forward that he's going to rely on, that the United States will be able to uh, interdict al-Qaeda's rise in Afghanistan, take on the war on terror from outside Afghanistan through these, quote-unquote, over-the-horizon capabilities. Now, we don't seem to have any neighboring base, uh, where the assets are going to be coming from, how long that will take, how you have overhead, reconnaissance, surveillance uh, to actually know what's going on. The lack of human intelligence all raised a lot of questions. So I guess if you were still national security advisor, what are you pushing for right now to create credible over the horizon capabilities to actually be able to stop the rise of Al Qaeda?
2: Well, it's it's a pipe dream,
0: right? It's just not going to happen.
2: You know, I mean, they're, they're, as you mentioned, you know, who, who was bearing the brunt of the fight against these terrorists? It was the Afghans doing it, right? And The Afghan forces who we delivered the psychological blows to before they collapsed. You know, we, we needed, you know, we need continuous sort of surveillance and reconnaissance capability to go after, a, a, you know, a, a, an elusive enemy, by the way, that was more detectable because they were in relatively rural terrain. Now they're in cities, and they're intermingled with civilian populations. That's an impossible problem. And then if you don't have the human intelligence network, right, you can't gain the visibility of these groups. that allows you to target them discreetly. And again, target them with what? May- Afghan you know, security forces, which are now gone. So it's, it's a pipe dream. I think you have to try to, to, to get some kind, of a, you know, some kind of a base that allows you to just do some low-level, you know, under-the-radar intelligence work by the agencies that do that um, in, in Central Asian states. Uh, but but we can't we can't be fooled you know by, by that I mean that's not going to deliver the kind of fidelity that we need and and you know I mean if, <laughs> what's going to be necessary I think just to continue the evacuation from a humanitarian perspective is the retaking of an airfield I mean I, I think that's the only way to do it you know I mean flying aircraft in from other places and you know and then you, you're using this one air, airfield in, in Kabul it's it's not going to work but we I don't think we have the guts to do it you know, we have military units that are designed specifically to do that. You know, to take airfields um, and uh, w- you know, without any additional training. I mean, they're like ready to go like right now. Uh, but but um, it, sadly, I think we lack the will to do what's necessary to get our own citizens out, you know, let alone the courageous Afghans who have helped us and, and who are now at risk with, along with their families. And uh, it's going to be just heart, heart-wrenching. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, Rich and Jared, just a, a quick point here. I, I think I think the president was operating under the assumption that there are no negative consequences for losing a, a war, right? Well, we're seeing just the beginning of these consequences now from a humanitarian perspective. It's going to be a worse humanitarian catastrophe, but as we've been discussing, there's also you know, security consequences and, and reputational consequences that we
0: haven't even begun to realize yet. I think we have time for one lightning round question before, before we have to say goodbye. Um, and I will ask, in your view... Who is the greatest U.S. military leader in history? Well, you know,
2: I, it's a combination, I would have to say, of of, uh, of George Washington uh, and and then also Ulysses S. Grant. And I think because both of them understood the nature of the conflict that they were in and they were able to meld together what was, what was essential to win the war uh, politically as well as militarily. And both of them saw opportunities where others only saw dangers. I mean, Trenton and Princeton, it doesn't get any better better than that in terms of of boldness uh and seizing the the initiative uh in, in connection with washington and then when, when when uh when grant took command of the armies, so a quite uh, you know, unlikely commander if you look at the instructions he gave to his army commanders they're brilliant in terms of the way he stitched together multiple efforts multiple operations to have a strategic effect and he did so in full cognizance of the capabilities and limitations of those subordinate commanders, as well as the environments in which they were operating and the enemy that they were facing, so yeah, those, those are my top two. Um,
0: if I, if you allow me to have two instead of just one, I think that's great, General McMaster. Thank you so much for your service to our country, your continued service, and uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks, Rich. Thanks, Jared. Take All care, right. you guys. Uh, just a great interview with General McMaster. Um, it's it's raw, it's fresh. He's honest. Uh, he doesn't hold back. It's it's both sides dishing out. Um, it's it's exactly what we always talk about in the show. It's it's sort of the service above politics.
1: Yeah, you know the the thing that I was struck by and is not getting enough attention in the press is the lack of attention really for 20 years in getting at some of the root causes of the Taliban regime, which is in Pakistan. And they have been an ally since the beginning. And I put ally in air quotes, even though this is a podcast and not a video podcast, but they've been an ally in this war on terror since the beginning. And really that's been the base of operations for the Taliban, the base of operations for Al-Qaeda. It's where we got bin Laden. Uh, And I really appreciate General McMaster speaking very frankly about our inability to, to confront that threat.
0: I agree with that wholeheartedly that it is missed completely. I think in the debate today, if there's going to be a blue ribbon commission or some sort of congressional inquiry, uh, a dedicated line of effort should be on the role of Pakistan and what our policy on Pakistan needs to be going forward. It is clearly a missing link here. Uh, I'll say one other thing that struck me. His response to my question on the over-the-horizon capabilities that President Biden speaks to and sort of, you know, just asking, like, as a as a military planner, what, what sort of things would you be trying to do? Well, how would you be trying to build that? And his sort of initial response is, it's just not going to happen. You know, because of all the challenges of no longer being there and not, you know, having any sort of base in the neighborhood, uh, I think that's a very scary prospect that no one is dealing with. And so we're going to have to confront that as the president keeps talking about that because otherwise, let's recall 1996, last time Kabul fell to the Taliban, was five years from 9 11. So are we going to sit here and say we have these over-the-rising capabilities for five years just to see another nine eleven in five years? Uh, I, I'm not going to sign up for that. Me neither.
1: If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And
0: most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.